Well, good to see you all here this beautiful summer uh, late afternoon evening. Looking forward to our time together. And as I've been mentioning over the past few weeks, we postponed our PowerPoint verse study for the month because we're going to look at it this Sunday in a message titled The Man of the House. And we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 20, verses 1 to 7, if you would like to uh, read ahead. And this will be our, obviously, Father's Day message. So, with that said, are you ready to go? Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Now, I'll remind you that last week we talked about the events, or last time, we talked about how the events recorded in chapter 21 and 22 weighed heavily on the heart of David. And we found evidence of that in that because of the content and events recorded in chapter 21, David later penned both Psalm 34 and Psalm 36. And as we'll note tonight, because of what is recorded in chapter 22, David would author Psalm 57 and will make mention of some of the things that he was dealing with because of the consequences of his actions and how they impacted others. Now, we titled our examination of chapter 21 in the form of a reminder, and our title was simply, He is Able. Our God is able this week too, amen? Now, the Lord had called, appointed, and anointed David as king, and therefore, when the Lord calls, anoints, and appoints, nothing is going to change it, nothing can stop it, even though, as with David, between the uh, appointing and anointing and calling as king, His actual coronation was some 25 years later, and there were many things that happened in between, but the fact is, it was going to happen because God had ordained it. But rather than remembering the fact that the Lord had, through Samuel, chosen David to be king over Israel, David failed to remind himself of God's protection during the last times that Saul had sought to kill him. And as we mentioned last week, or revealed last week, what David actually resorted to, rather than remembering God's faithfulness, he decided to lie to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob. And Ahimelech was concerned, why is David in the city, someone so close to the king, someone that's even the king's son-in-law, why is he here without escort and unarmed? And what David should have remembered and what we made our points from last week is that when we're in a tough spot, we need to recognize and remember that there are no circumstances from which God is unable to deliver. He is able. Amen. He's just as able now as he was last week and during David's lifespan as well. Now, the reason that we need to remember that is because what God has promised, he is able to perform. If David was anointed to be king, David was going to be king, no matter what Saul tried to do or how he tried to stop it. And yet, with that in mind, with that in his heart, with that in his past experience, David decides to flee to Gath, the hometown of Goliath. Not only does he flee to Gath, the headquarters of the Philistines, but he also arrives there with Goliath's sword in tow. And basically what we learn from that, because David had to act like he was crazy in order to escape. If you remember, he did the very self-degrading act of letting saliva fall down his beard, which no man would do in that day, yet David did in order to escape. So in a sense, we made the point that he had fled to the world. And our takeaway was there is nothing in the world that is better than God's will. God's will is always right. God's will is always best. You should have said amen, even though you said it to it last week right there. Now, 
There may have been some logic behind David's choice. We have to recognize that. After all, why would Saul go looking for David in the capital city, or at least the headquarters of the Philistines and their army? Yet, God had a plan to protect David, even if David hadn't known about it, even if all David did know about was that God had appointed him to be the future king. Now, from what we're going to read tonight, David would pen these words in Psalm 57, 1 and 2. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge, until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for who? For me. David personalized the work of the Lord, much like Paul did in Galatians 2.20. And that is something I think appropriate for all of us to remember that his eye roams the earth looking for those uh, that who he may show himself strong on behalf of, whose heart is loyal to him. Now, the heading of this psalm reads, A Mitchum of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. So it's identified in relationship to what we're about to study. Now, what David says in the opening verses of Psalm 57 shows that even as a man after God's own heart, even as the, the greatest king in the history of Israel, a man handpicked by God to rule the nation, David actually did what we often do in tough times, and that is, take matters into our own hands. And we often look to uh, the ways of the world that protect ourselves, or at least the tactics tactics of self-defense in that sense. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10, Paul reminds us that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power of God may be, uh, may be of God and not of us. Now, then listen to what he says. We are hard-pressed on, next two words, every side. Yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Now, we have established far too many times to even mention that God allows hard things in our lives. Right? God allows hard things. Sometimes God allows things that may even at first glance or examination seem contrary to what he has promised to do in our lives. And I'm sure this type of thing was rolling through David's mind as he watched things play out in his own life and waited this uh, near quarter century in order to be actually uh, crowned as king. But I think the important thing to take from what Paul said is that even in the midst of the difficulties we face in life, not one soul has ever been snatched from the Father's hand. Not one person has ever been separated from the Father's love. Now, times can be tough. Life can be hard, but neither of those things are evidence that we've been forsaken by God or that we need to take control of the situation since God seems to be uh, unengaged in what's going on in our lives. We need to remember that is never, ever true. Amen? Now... This is not, as we said in a previous message in Acts, to the exclusion of using basic common sense and God-given wisdom, for the Lord has given us wisdom that comes from above, that James describes as being first pure. In other words, it's unpolluted from the things that the world would contribute to our decision-making processes. And therefore, pure wisdom that comes from above is never going to lead us to flee to the enemy camp or lie to save our own skin. And David did both, and tonight we're going to examine the aftermath of David's decision. Now, our topic and title from our text tonight 
is actually a choice that we will make every time we make an important decision. And that is we will choose to do things either, here's our title, God's way or the wrong way. God's way or the wrong way. It's not even my way, it's the wrong way. Now our chapter tonight is also a reminder that it introduces a time span of David's life experience that lasted some 10 years. He was on the run, in exile, if you will. And yet, here here he is, the chosen by God, handpicked by the Lord to be the future king of Israel. And yet, this is what is going on in his life. Now, this reminds us that God moves in his own timing. Anybody ever wish he showed up sooner? Yeah, like every time we pray, right? But, listen, when we try and circumvent God's timing or assume his role, we're doing things the wrong way. Because God is in control of the timing and the what of our situation and how it's going to be resolved or the right way. And we'll find this proven in our text. We've got a long chapter, but we'll look at it in three bites, starting with chapter uh, verses 1 through 5. So if you would stand and read with me, please. 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 5, and we'll see the consequences of choosing the wrong way when God has a way for us to go. Verse 1. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and he dwelt there with them all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart, and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. You may be seated. Now, as we mentioned, this time that began at the cave of Adullam, the word Adullam actually means the justice of the people, began a decade of dodging and hiding from King Saul's efforts to kill the one who God had said would be his replacement through the prophet Samuel. Now, J. Vernon McGee made some interesting comments concerning this time period of David's life recorded in both the Psalms and 1 Samuel. And J. Vernon made the point that David describes himself as somebody who was hunted like a partridge. He said that in uh, 1 Samuel 26, 20. He also said, I'm like a pelican of the wilderness or like an owl out in the desert in Psalm 102, 6. David would write, my soul is among lions in Psalm 57, 4. And he would also say they have prepared a net for my steps in Psalm 57, 6. So David is describing his situation and life experience at that point in time as one that is difficult to say the least, as he used these word pictures to describe it to us. Now, there's also a beautiful picture of Christ and David being a type of Christ presented to us here in the text. Now, if you think about it, you and I today are living in a time where the rightful king and ruler of this world has been rejected. And most people are turning their back on him, as we see happening all around us today. And just as David was rejected and hunted like an animal by Saul, so too our enemy roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. Peter said so in 1 Peter 5, 8 to 11, that in light of that, we are to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
Then we're exhorted to resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, bring to completion, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, During these days of the rightful king's rejection, we're not talking about the king of Israel. We're talking about the king of all the earth, the king of heaven and earth, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Like with David's story here and situation, the Lord is gathering a group of people around him who are distressed by the things of the world. He's gathering an army of people who owe the wages of sin and therefore they are indebted. They are discontented with the emptiness inside and are looking to the king for direction and protection and provision. Now the three classes of men who were listed in David's day were those who were in distress because the implication is to the language that they were being persecuted and oppressed by Saul. The discontented also came to David. That means they were bitter of soul. That word discontentment, that is. The circumstances and experiences of life had left them embittered and frustrated. So David does what he should have done in the first place. He went to a place where his family could be with him and be a support system around him. He went to the cave of Adullam, which was southwest of Jerusalem in a valley between Philistia and Hebron. Now, his family hears of his plight. They go to join him there. An army of 400 begins to gather around him. And this reminds us of something else that the king of kings actually does in our life when we come to him as the discontent and those in despair. In 2 Samuel 23, 8 to 13, we're told of this group of 400. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josbed Bashtabeth, the Tachamite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. I don't know if I'd claim that title. The Ahoite, who the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together in a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then the three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam and the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Now, this is what I think you and I need to remember tonight. God is in the business of taking the distressed, indebted, and discontented and making them into warriors for his kingdom. This is what God does in our lives. He transforms us. He renews our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and even perfect will of God. And one thing we need to remember when we're facing life decisions, even when things don't make sense, even when it's been a season of difficulty, even when it's been a prolonged season of difficulty, like David was already in and is now getting deeper into, we need to remember this. And here's the first of three things I want you to jot down tonight. Listen. 
God will never send us where he has not gone before us. God will never send us where he has not gone before us. Now, if you think about what we read and what happens next is David's family comes to him at the cave of Adullam. An army gathers around him, a people like him, and then God sets him over them. He goes from there to Mizpah, which means watchtower in the land of Moab. And most commentators, oddly, at least in my mind, equated this to David's fleeing to Gath, or they see it as an act of disobedience. But I believe the comparison seems hardly fitting because of the fact that David had a family now around him, and he had a connection via his great-grandparents to uh, Moab, and that being Boaz and Ruth, and that beautiful uh, love story and story of the kinsman redeemer recorded in the book of Ruth's name. Now, This was a place where this couple would have been known, Ruth and Boaz, that is. And their reputations would have been respected, for he was, Boaz, that is, a godly man. And the time came for David to move, and the Lord sent a prophet to speak to him, to no longer stay in the stronghold or the fortress, but to go back to the land of Judah, and David did so. And we don't read anything about the consequences of his untruths or any of these other things that we're going to read about in a moment when he followed this path and the direction of one who spoke to him in the name of the Lord. Now, this should also remind us of Matthew 2.13, where we're told when they had departed, Joseph and Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to where? Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And then later in 19 to 21, same chapter, we're told when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life were dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. Now, we see Israel's king, And the king of kings and lord of lords are both directed outside of the land of promise for their own protection and safety. Then they're both told through supernatural means that it is time to go back for the Lord Jesus because Herod was dead for David because the Lord was watching over him. I don't think that's a coincidence, if you will. Now, this is why our point is so important. God knows what he's doing. Boy, is there an understatement. God knows what he's doing. Amen. He directs our path. He orders our steps. He's been orchestrating events as he did in David's life. Think about this. His great grandparents were in a way used to afford David an audience with the king because of the family association and reputation of his great grandparents. God was working all this out before David was even born. And he does the same in our lives. And thus Jesus could say in John 14, 1 to 3, and remind you and I, and certainly those at the table with him at the Last Supper, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to do what? Prepare a place for you. In other words, I'm going in advance to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Think about that. The Lord has even gone before us to prepare a place for us in his father's house where we are going to enjoy an eternal sinless existence. Boy, that sounds kind of exciting right about now, doesn't it? Now, and he's going to lead us between now and then 
throughout the encounters we have in life in both known and unknown ways. You know, I think it's important for us, as we're told, to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and thanks with thanksgiving, to uh, offer our sacrifice of praise to God. But I think sometimes it would be worthwhile for us to just thank God for the stuff we don't know. Thank him for the ways he protected us. Do you know he protected you all day today? That he was watching over you all day long today? And he cares for you and he's watching over not just your soul, but your life. And sometimes I think we just need to pause and say, Lord... Thank you for what I don't know about that you averted, that you caused not to happen or protected me from. Because what we just talked about and what Jesus just said and what we're establishing our first truth as is why this can be said. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll do what? He'll do what? He'll direct your path. Now listen, what we know for sure is that God's plan for David was not to run to Gath. God's plan for David was not to lie to Ahimelech. His plan for David was, obviously, to get with his family, build an army, return to Judah, not in fear, but in faith. And the same is true for you and I when we face our difficulties in this life. Now let's keep reading in verses 6 to 16. We'll take a big chunk here for a moment. Verse 6, When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered... Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah, with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there's not one of you who is sorry for me. I feel like we need to answer to boo-hoo-hoo in there somewhere. Or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is to this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired from the Lord for him, gave him provisions, gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, into his, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here am I, my lord. Here I am, my lord, rather. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and you have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to this to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech. You and all your father's house. Now, we have a bit of a covert reminder, if you will, of our title in that one of the sources of Saul's self-inflicted cry of conspiracy is based on the fact that Jonathan dealt with David God's way and Saul dealt with David the wrong way. Now, I also couldn't help but note that it seems like Saul sure spends a lot of time under a tamarisk tree. 
And I think if he spent more time on his knees, he wouldn't spend so much time uh, being prone to doing things the wrong way. Now, David and his family could easily hide from Saul, but hiding an army of 400 men was another matter altogether. And therefore, Saul discovers the whereabouts of David and his men, and he opens his paranoid indictment of his own servants by asking, as those of the tribe of Benjamin, what do you think a king from Judah is going to do for you? Do you think he's going to give you land? Do you think he's going to make you captains and set you over portions of his army? He goes on to say, don't any of you feel sorry for me that Jonathan has stirred up David against me, which was a lie. Jonathan did no such thing. And on the heels of this, another liar steps forward, Doeg the Edomite, and says, I saw David in Gath and Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. Ahimelech did no such thing. He gave him provisions, which was true. He gave him the showbread, as we talked about uh, in last chapter, and he left with Goliath's sword. But Doeg conveniently leaves out the part that Ahimelech was told David was on an urgent mission for Saul. And Ahimelech is sent for and confronted and says, I did no such thing. And I was acting on what your son-in-law, whom you trust, told me to do. Now, back in 1 Samuel 18, 5 to 9, we're told, David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul, with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul said, that's a really catchy tune and I like the lyrics. No, he was very what? Angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've only ascribed thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? He already knew that David had been given the kingdom. So Saul I looked on David with suspicion from that day forward. This was Saul's real problem. This was what he was fighting with. He was jealous of David. He wasn't heartbroken that Jonathan had sided with David. Remember, he'd already tried to kill Jonathan, his own son, twice. One for breaking a vow he didn't even know of, and then throwing a javelin at him when Jonathan confronted Saul about his attitude towards David. His ears were deafened by jealousy. And Ahimelech's honest reply went unheard. Someone was going to pay for David's popularity, and anybody who showed any loyalty to David was an obvious enemy of the king in Saul's mind. Now, I'll remind you also of James 3, 13 to 17, where James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness, in the meekness of wisdom. But... If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and what? Demonic. For when envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Do you see all that in Saul's life? He is a jealous man. His works are not done in the meekness of wisdom. He does not have good conduct. His heart is filled with bitter envy and self-seeking. And back in chapter 15, Saul had disobeyed the Lord's instructions to wipe out the Amalekites and all their livestock and spared the best of the livestock and King Agag of Amalek as well. Saul, even in disobeying God, asked Samuel to pardon him. 
He said, come back and worship with me in front of the people so they don't think that I have been cast out or become aware of me being separated uh, by the Lord as king. In 1 Samuel 15, 26 to 27, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours. Now, do you think these words were ringing in his ears? Who is better than you? Now, being a better man and being told so, David being a better man, being told so by Samuel, had to be resonating in the mind of Saul when he heard the defense of Ahimelech. And he was thinking with a heart filled with envy and self-seeking that he had had enough of priests thinking more of David than they thought of the king himself. And therefore, he orders his death. If we look at the scene, David lied, Doeg lied, and Ahimelech is the one who died. Now, that translates into a very obvious and even kind of corny point. We'll just lighten it up for a moment. So this is a very ugly scene in this chapter. But let me remind you of this very simplistic truth. Are you ready? Okay, the two of you who are ready, bless you. The rest of you, it's coming anyway. So here we go. You ready? The cost and consequences of sin are best avoided by not sinning. You can say no, duh. You can say amen, whatever you want. But there it is. The cost and consequences of sin are best avoided by not sinning. If David hadn't lied, lying is a sin then Ahimelech would have not had an accusation brought against him. Now, I say this often, I'll say it again, I'll say it in the future, of how often a call to repentance is viewed as legalism, it's labeled as works righteousness. And the fact is, if you want to put a this life benefit on repentance, we might just call it a pain and sorrow avoidance system. If we just follow after what God says, there's going to still be a tax, right? There's going to still be tribulation, but we can avoid 100% of the self-inflicted wounds that David now is bearing the brunt of and Ahimelech paid the price for if we would just simply do what God has called us to do. Now listen, here's what I want you to remember tonight. David wasn't trying to earn the right to be king. He was already appointed by God to be king. And choosing God's way would have spared he and Ahimelech the consequences of his sin, but it wouldn't have gained him the throne. It was already his. And that's how we need to look at repentance. It isn't giving us anything. It's a response to what we have been given. And if we live in the manner that God has called us to, we're going to avoid... Who wants to get caught in a lie? Amen? That's embarrassing, right? And there's consequences to that. Who wants to get caught stealing? Raise your hand. I know nobody wants to... You get my point, right? If we just avoid these things, then we're going to avoid the consequences of them automatically. After all, we too have been saved by grace through faith. We too have been made kings and priests to the Lord. We are not yet those things in the sense of them being uh, actualized in our lives. We're not trying to gain what is already ours when we repent or choose God's way over the wrong way. Then the fact is the cost and consequences of sin in this life have already Uh, been dealt with, as well as the eternal consequences, but we can avoid the painful things associated with just doing what God says. Jesus' blood covered all of our sins. Amen? And therefore, there are no eternal consequences for our sins. But, 
as has often been described, we can bear the, the aftermath of making a poor decision that was against the will of God in this life. Now in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we're also told, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, while we have Christ as the author and finisher of our faith, seated at the right hand of majesty on high, we are still encouraged to lay aside, meaning to turn from or put off, weights and sins that so easily ensnare us. They exploit our fleshly tendencies. The reason? So we can run the race set before us with endurance. David's lie had a grave but absolutely avoidable consequence. All he had to do was do things God's way rather than the wrong way. Let's take a look at the graveness of his actions by looking at 17 to 23. Having pronounced the death sentence, then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priest, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children, nursing infants, oxen, and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, Abiathar, I'm sorry, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life, seek your life. But with me, you shall be safe. Now, the first thing we need to note is that Doeg, Doeg diverted the attention of Saul away from the servants he was in charge of and put it on the priest, Saul's attention that is. And Saul now having pro, uh, pronounced a death sentence on them, calls on his team of bodyguards to execute them an order which they wisely refuse to obey. So Saul turns to a foreigner. He gives a command to a man of no conviction or compulsion to honor those who wore the linen ephod. And he kills 84 plus Ahimelech. And then he goes to the hometown of Nob and he kills everyone and everything with the edge of the sword. And I don't think we can underscore enough the significance of what we just read. 85 priests, a whole town of women and children, nursing infants were told, Donkeys and sheep all died because a man who God chose lied when he had no reason to. And Colossians 3.9 tells us, do not lie to one another. Does that need any interpretation? Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds, speaking of our old nature. Revelation 21.22-27 also talks about the heavenly city. John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. 
And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a what? A lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, obviously, lying is not a good thing, but it's just an example of the consequences of sin. Anything that God tells us we shouldn't do, we shouldn't do. Anything God tells us we should do, we should do. Now, lying has earthly consequences, clearly, as we see in our text, and it's not part of the heavenly experience. The cost and consequences are far too grave to practice lying, So, as uh, we're told here. Now, one of Ahimelech's sons manages to escape. He runs to David and his army, and he's told, uh, tells David all that Saul had done. David says he knew when he saw Doeg and Nob there was going to be trouble. Then he assures the young man that he is going to protect him. Now, this leads to our final consideration. We'll have to develop this a little bit as we wrap up this awful chapter. And listen, here's our takeaway. And again, kind of packaged in a way that will uh, be rememberable, so to speak. Listen, when God's people fail, they can always fail forward. When God's people fail, they can always fail forward. In other words, wrong, one wrong need not be followed by another. And we, as God's children, have the right to return to doing his will. And after all, the Proverbs say in 24:16, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Now, it is important to note that while Doeg and his men wielded the swords, the responsibility for the death of the priests and all the people and animals in Nob fell solely on the shoulders of Saul. He gave the order. He was the king. Now, we're told the wicked shall fall by their calamity. And in 1 Samuel 31, 1 to 6, we're told the Philistines had fought against Israel. The men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him. He was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, all his men died together that same day. What a calamitous ending to the reign of an evil man. His own sons, including one who was a kindred spirit with David, die in the battlefield. And when the Philistines came to strip the bodies of these men, all the uh, those of the uh, army of the Jews, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. They cut off Saul's head. They stripped his body of his armor. They sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim in their temples that they had victory over the God of Israel. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths. And they fastened Saul's body to the wall at Bethshean. Now, 
Bethshean is one of the most magnificent archaeological sites in Israel. It is just a tremendous place to visit. You walk down what's called the Agora, the main street of the city, and there's on either side of the street where merchants would sell their wares and there was uh, bathhouses and other things that uh, you could see some of the ingenuity of the people of the city. It's quite amazing. But every time we go to Bethshean, there's always a sadness in my mind at least, it hangs over the city because of what happened there. Saul was hung on a wall, and then we do know that there were those who came and took his body down. But Jonathan was slain there, and the uh, abuse that uh, he was trying to avoid caused him to take his own life. But the point for us here this evening is David returns to being the man that God saw him to be. He was looking out for those who bore the consequences of his failure. So we could say he was failing forward in that sense. And we can too. And I love the saying, I don't know who uh, actually coined a phrase, but I love it whenever I see it or hear it. And we need to remember that every setback is an opportunity for a comeback. And even if the setback is of our own doing, even if the failure is our own, we can still fail forward. We don't have to live in the mire. We don't have to stay down when we have fallen. Even if we fall completely, and remember what Proverbs says, though the righteous may fall seven times. Seven is the number of Completeness. Well, the way I read that, you can completely fall. You can completely mess up. But because you're a child of God, you have the right to get up. You can mess up, but you can still get up. Somebody say amen. Now, what we do know is that David would fall again in the future. He would fall badly. He would lie, or at the very least, we could say he would live a lie. And because he lived a lie, somebody else would die again. But even then, David regains his footing once again. And he wrote of the pain and sorrow of his failure with Bathsheba and his ordered murder. He did exactly what Saul did with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. And therefore David would write about this event in Psalm 51, 1-4. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin... He didn't blame it on Bathsheba uh, being on the roof of the house next door taking a bath. He didn't blame it on anything. He took responsibility. He said, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. In other words, I can't forget the things that I have done. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. David wrote this psalm after he was confronted by Nathan about his sin. But again, David failed forward. He didn't justify his sin. He didn't explain his sin. He just owned his sin. And he acknowledged that when he exited his mother's womb, that he did so as a sinner. Now, because we are blood-bought, born-again believers in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we can fail forward too. Now, there are two choices in life in every situation. You could do it God's way or the wrong way. I strongly suggest you do it God's way because it's always the right way. But if you choose the wrong way, maybe you even chose the wrong way today. The fact is you have the right to choose the right way again and move forward in spite of your failures, no matter how recent or distant they may be. This is a sad chapter. And really, it's without a happy ending. It's just a solemn return to doing what was right in God's eyes all along, and that was caring for other people, which was the responsibility of the king. And Saul had abandoned that, and David 
needed to practice that. So just let me encourage you tonight. Maybe you've had a slip, a fall. Maybe it was intentional. Maybe you knew. Anybody ever know the right thing to do and not do it? Come on, get them up there. Yeah, we've all known the right thing to do and not done it. And then James says to him who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it. To him it is what? It's sin. So... Whether it's something like lying that has consequences on yourself or other people or anything else that is something that God has prohibited for our own sake, benefit, and blessing during this life, you don't have to stay down. You have every right as a child of God to get up. Fail forward. Keep moving. Get up and get back to doing the right thing. ASAP. And the Lord will honor that. And just be honest as David was. I did it. I've got nobody to blame but myself. So what I'm looking for is not justification, but sanctification by you cleansing me and washing me because of my sin. Listen, that's the only way to go about it. And that's the right way, even when we've fallen. So, listen, we all mess up. Boy, that was slow coming. We all mess up, but we all can get up. We don't have to stay down. We certainly don't have to wallow in the filth of the devil's plans and purposes for our lives. We have the right to rise again and do what's right before God. Somebody say, And Father, we are thankful again for this awful chapter. We're thankful that you included it to see the ugliness of choosing to do things our own way. And David, even a man that you dubbed with the title, the man after your own heart, a man that you said you had chosen over the one who in all appearances was the perfect choice for a king, head and shoulders taller than the rest of the people. But he had a heart problem. And David, you looked upon his heart and saw that he was after it, but yet he had failures in his life. But as we see, even though there were delays, like with the confrontation with Nathan, he came to the end of himself. He got up again and got back on the right path. Help us to do that, Lord, when we have our own failures. Intentional, done in ignorance, or just flat out choosing to do the wrong thing, even when we know what's right. Help us, Lord, I pray for all here in the room or those online, that we would fail forward should we happen to fail. But help us, Lord, to remember just that we can avoid all of sin's consequences just by not sinning. And it's not so we can earn favor with you or anything else. It's just so our life experience can be better and without self-inflicted wounds and consequences. So help us to embrace these things tonight that we've gleaned from your word and give us uh, the power of your spirit to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you.